Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. All right, take your Bible and open to Acts chapter 4. Verse 32, thank you for those that, were, uh, that uh, were able to help us relocate yesterday. We're excited to be in our new place, and my body is fussing at me today. But if it hadn't been for them helping us, I probably wouldn't stand here today because I'd be wiped out totally. So we're grateful for everybody that came to help us uh, move yesterday. To our permanent home. Yes. All right. I digress because it's not about me. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. If you took 100 pianos, I don't know where you'd find them all. Go to Facebook Marketplace. Maybe you'll find them there. But if you had 100 pianos, let's make them big, beautiful, grand pianos. And you tuned them all to the same tuning fork. They're all inherently tuned to one another at that point, okay? In order for there to be unity, there has to be something or someone out there that everyone is tuned to. For, for the church, for followers of Jesus, that tuning instrument is the Spirit of God. The moment at which the tuning fork strikes and the tune sounds in order to tune that string on the piano, that tuning fork strike is the gospel. When you hear it for the first time and you hear what Christ has done for you, it's the Spirit's work in our hearts, transforming us into the likeness of Christ that keeps us united and keeps us going the same way. As we all have to have that God perspective to help us govern our thinking in the church. At the end of Acts chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, we find yet another summary of the church that helps us understand what's going on early in her life and to see how through one act from one couple, that unity can come under danger. There is a great importance of the unity of the faith And there's great danger in the fallacies and the lies and the temptation that we hear from our enemy. So take your Bible, stand with me as I read from Acts chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 37, and I'll finish when I finish. Verse 32, now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, 
the one, uh, to, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphire, sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. It is true, even in the hard passages like this. It is true and without error. So Father, we ask you to speak to us now through your word, that our ears would listen closely to what your spirit is saying. As we work our way through the text, God, that what we do not know, you would teach us. And Father, what we hear from you that we are not, that you would make us. And Father, what we do not have, but we need, that you would provide for us. We depend on you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. What a fun story. Right now, we're going to take up the offering. <laughs> Just see where you are, you know, on the spectrum today, okay? And see, uh, all joking aside, this is not one that I'd really look forward to preaching because um, it's a difficult passage, but nonetheless, we, we handle it anyway, and we'll handle it with grace. But it starts with good news, and that's that the church in that summary passage at the end of chapter four, we see that the church is united. And that's what we want to be. We want to be a united church. And that summary passage, really, you get the sense that things are going well for the church. God is adding to their number daily. We, we just left off last week or a couple of weeks ago out of the beginning of chapter 4 where we had 5,000 just men added. Okay, so imagine if, they've all, if they're all married and they have a family, that number grows exponentially. And so things are going well. The apostles have been through a, a small trial, small fiery trial, not bad, not, not as intense as it's going to be, but they've made it through a trial of being on, on trial before, uh, for preaching in the name of Jesus and healing this lame man, and they've been told not to do that anymore, but we know from last week they're going to carry on, and we see that they're carrying on. So things are going well uh, for the early church, and, and really in the beginning chapters of Acts, as I've worked through it, I'm like, wow, like, this is a great church. I mean, what pastor wouldn't want to move to Jerusalem and pastor these people? They're, they're all evangelists. The church is growing. I mean, 
5,000 people at least. We're going to double that probably. Uh, you know, it's grow- week to week. That's, I mean, like, hey, you got to order more chairs this week because there are more people coming. So, like, it's just happening, and they love each other. They're united, one heart, one mind. All these things are, and we can make them out to be superheroes on some level. Like, we, in fact, there are some folks who won't attend a church nowadays, even though they say they claim to follow Jesus, but they won't attend a church because churches aren't structured like this. Like this. Churches don't do this anymore, right? Like, we're not seeing thousands of people come, and we're not doing, you know, we're meeting in a big building, and we need small, like, we can just blow this so out of proportion. But what we just simply see is what the heart of the message is, is that the church is united because the church is following Jesus, and the Spirit is at work in the church. In Christ Jesus, he makes us alive with him. And that Holy Spirit establishes this kind of unity expressed by Luke. I mean, we look at their faith. We look at their boldness. We look and we're just thinking, wow, they, they don't have the whole organization. Like, they don't have to deal with committees and budgets and buildings and, and all of these things that, that just t- tend to get us all out of, uh, out of sync sometimes with the church. But simply put, they're of one heart and one Mind, and it is because Christ Jesus has come in to transform them. He saved them. Their sins are forgiven. They're walking with Him, and now the Holy Spirit daily is transforming them into His likeness. And that's what we see at the very beginning. There is a great faith at work in the early church. This church is united in a common faith, even though they're from different backgrounds. If you go back to Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, you'll see there that, that list. There's about 10 different ethnicities listed there that Luke gives us. Perhaps there was more, but there's at least 10 there listed. And, and they're all from different places. They're speaking different languages. That's the miracle of Pentecost. And, and it's, it's an amazing scene that here we can find different people from different backgrounds, but they all have one need. They all had one need. Now that need has been met. That need is a relationship with Jesus. Each one of us, though we are from different places, some of us are from the Northeast, some of us are from right here in South Texas, others from East Texas, North Texas, some of you are, are, are winter Texans that just stayed for summer. I don't know why you ever did that, but some of you are, are in that category. Um, you know, like, take me with you when you go back north so I don't have to sweat. No, I'm just kidding, we're here permanently. So um, all the good things, right? We're all so different, and yet here it is, that we all have the same need, that is Jesus, and that is what unites them. There's this great faith at work in the early church. <clears throat> it's that need of the heart. Luke writes, those who believed were of one heart and one mind. One heart and one mind. That got me to thinking about Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. As he wrote in Jeremiah 17, That the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Who can tame it? Who can can know what's going on there? Well, God does. He's the one that put it there. And the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, speaking through Ezekiel, he says, God says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It is that new heart that is uniting the church. God has done what he said he would do. He has given all of these saints who are now in the church following Jesus, he has given them all a new heart. In that new heart, they're in tune with one another because they're in tune with Jesus. And the Spirit is at work tuning them daily to be in step with the Lord. 
without that change, without that transformation, we might find some agreement on a couple of things, but we'll certainly not be in agreement on our one need, which is the need of Jesus. And we certainly wouldn't be of one heart and one mind. We also see, other than a great faith, a great generosity at work. They are rather preoccupied with meeting one another's needs. There's a deep humility here that can only come from following Jesus because we see that in him. He gave everything so that these folks in in the book of Acts and even you today can be saved. He gave it all. He gave everything there was to give so that you could have a new life and a new heart in him. We see this being played out, this great faith being played out with this great generosity because our sinful heart, our natural sinful heart will always be inclined to greed because that's the sin. We'll always be inclined to be self-centered. We'll always be inclined to cling to our possessions because that's, that's the sinful heart. That's what Satan wants us to believe. He wants us to believe that these possessions are more important than anything Jesus could ever offer. He wants you to believe Jesus is going to ask you to sell everything. It's not. Jesus asked one person that, told one person that in the New Testament. You remember the rich young ruler. He, he came to Jesus, approached him on his own initiative and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You remember that? Jesus gave him a long list of commands and he said, oh, I've done all of that and I keep these things. Jesus said, then go sell everything you have and follow me. Sell everything you have. Why did Jesus bring that out? Because that was his idol. That was his God. That's where he was putting everything. That's that, his whole life. He was all in on his material wealth and his possessions. Jesus knew that. So he called him out on it. But he couldn't let go. And he walked away. And he walked away brokenhearted. He walked away sad because he couldn't let go of the one thing that was in the way between him and Jesus. But in the early church, we see that their hearts have been changed We see a heart that is surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, and that heart transformation is being lived out in generosity. The Holy Spirit at work, transforming them daily, tuning them daily to be conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus. We see that happening in the early church. And we need to remember that this this generosity is not coerced. Peter's not standing there preaching them, go sell everything you have, sell every last thing that you have and that you own and give me all the money. That's not what Peter's doing. Now, there's some charlatans out there today that would do that and have done that. But this giving is not forced. It's not coerced. It's voluntary. It's all voluntary giving. But they're doing it from their heart. Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. That principle led the church to think of each other before they thought of themselves, to sell what they had, to help meet a need as the need arose. They didn't sell everything because we know they're still meeting in homes. They didn't sell everything they had, but they didn't have to. They were selling to meet needs. It's like this. If you're a small business owner, you conduct business and commerce throughout the week. What you're selling provides you an income. Hopefully, you're tithing off of that income. It's the same principle. If you are working and you're employed, you're earning a wage. 
from that wage, hopefully, prayerfully, you are tithing off of that. It's the same concept. It's amazing testimony of stewardship we see happening at the end of Acts chapter 4. Taking care, shepherding, stewarding what God has blessed us with. It's an important concept in the, in the scriptures. It's one way that we can live out a great faith within the church. And I see it happen. I was a personal, uh, uh, I received it personally yesterday. And my family did from, from you all as you came. You helped us move back to the mainland generously. That, that helped us get back here to be your pastor and to serve here and live forever for the rest of our lives here. And I see it on the last Sunday of every month in the compassion jar. You never know how that's going to go, but I've seen it go out almost weekly. I've seen it go out. I've seen electric bills paid. I've seen rent paid. I've seen lots of things, lots of needs met from people who are working and, and trying, but just struggling through this time, this, this hard economic time. But I've seen it. Your generosity every week blesses someone in this church family. Like this is lived out in Coastal Oaks. And I applaud you for that. And I thank God for that for you on your behalf. Don't, be, don't get proud about it. Don't get the big head because Ananias and Sapphire are coming. We'll, we'll step on that and burst that bubble in a minute. But I want to applaud you for your generosity. I think this is one of these areas where you, Coastal Oaks, are doing an, an amazing job. And I want to encourage you to keep it up and keep going. And if you haven't joined in on the generosity train, I'd suggest you do. But here is a place where you got to watch out with Ananias and Sapphire. They're also preaching a powerful message. With great power, the apostles are giving testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We've covered that already in chapter 4, but that great power is still coming through them, obviously through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is the proclamation of that message that the Holy Spirit would also use to keep them in one heart and one mind and to keep the, the, the fact that we need uh, the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord, that we need to believe in the power of the resurrection. It's keeping that in the forefront of their minds. And also we see that there is a great grace at work on all of them. That great grace is at, at work in a couple of different ways. One, the generosity of the church. Two, the great preaching and the witness of the church. The community, the city, the people of Jerusalem, those who are not in the church, see this, generos this generosity at work in the lives of the believers. And it's giving a testimony to God's grace and his greatness. This powerful message that is at work, this great grace that is still at work, we, we still need to be of the mindset of what's coming in chapter 5, this, this sin that is going to be at play in the church. Because as quickly as we can get be of one mind and of one heart, just as quickly as we can celebrate our generosity and all of those things, just as quickly as we can build up and, and build up this bubble and, and be so proud of ourselves, we come to this moment where unity is under fire. We're just one or two people act in selfishness and, and, and stymie the growth and the progress that the church has made. Where, where the source of, of grace and, and, and the, the source of power at work and, and transforming lives is, seems to be coming to a screeching halt in chapter 5. where unity is under fire. And just in case you thought you were attending the perfect church or had joined the perfect church, 
I'll quickly put that to rest. You did not join the perfect church and know your pastor is not perfect. You learned last Sunday afternoon at baptism at the beach that I could not walk on water. So you, you know that now, and it is important that you understand that at some point, people in the church are going to disappoint you. That's just the way it is. Why? Because we still all struggle with temptation and we fight that battle daily. There's a way to handle disappointment properly and biblically, and that is forgiveness. That's the way we are supposed to handle it. And I pray that we will always handle that with forgiveness and love. But in this moment in Acts chapter 5, there are two folks here. We find Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife. And they certainly begin to point out to us that the church is not perfect. You remember, you might have heard the name Charles Spurgeon, great preacher of our past, great history uh, there in in, uh, preaching in England. He said this about joining a perfect church. He said, you that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found the one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. For Acts chapter 5, this is a moment where we begin to see some cracks in the foundation, for lack of a better word. Not that the foundation of Christ has cracks, but just figure of speech. There are some fault lines And we start to see that happen in chapter 5. And it's a serious moment, chapter 5 is. At least the first 11 verses. It's a serious moment that we need to look at with our eyes wide open. And I I want you to just take your pencil or your pen, whatever you got there, and and just write at the beginning of chapter 5, just write these three words, God is holy. We need to take that personally We need to take that corporately, just as our choir so beautifully reminded us, praising him for his holiness just a moment ago. We need to remember that God is holy. And the fault line or the the crack in the foundation, if you will, in this early church, it's going to be remedied on the spot. Having said that there is no perfect church, that's not an excuse for us to go out today and try to fool God. Or even this morning in the time we have left to try to fool God as if we can trick the one who knows us better than anyone. Tony Murata said it this way. He said, a dangerous, there's a dangerous holiness in God's response to Ananias and Sapphira. He called what Ananias and Sapphira did a determined hypocrisy. It's premeditated, if you will, what their response is with the sale of their property. God knows everything about you. That's where we come at Acts chapter 5. He knows everything that's happening. He, knows, he knew exactly about Ananias and Sapphira. He knows exactly about you. He knows everything about me. He knows the absolute truth. If your book was a ledger book of pluses and minuses, he knows every good work that you are counting on to get you into heaven. He's got it down. He's not sitting there with an eraser 
scratching them off every time you goof up. He's got his ledger book open. And in that ledger book, there's always going to be more minuses than positives. Always. He knows your heart. He knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your intentions. And you know what? He loves you anyway. He loves you anyway. And his grace and his mercy have been displayed on the cross anyway. But church, we can't make the mistake of living a life of cheap grace. We look at Ananias and Sapphira, we might just call them the deceivers. Like others in the church, they sold property. We have Barnabas mentioned in verse 36 and 37. Barnabas is a, is a great example for us to look at. Barnabas is gonna be mentioned again in the book of Acts. Son of encouragement. He, sell, he sells a piece of property that he owned and he brought the money and he laid it at the disciples' feet, at the apostles' feet. That's our example. And then we get to Ananias and Sapphira. They had determined to hold a portion back, which was their choice. Just like if you give, you don't give your whole paycheck. You give a tenth. Sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. Either way, you're giving. And that's important. Barnabas gave everything that he sold in that moment to the apostles. But Ananias and Sapphira held something back. Again, there was no coercion here. Everything in the early church is voluntary. There's nothing written down at this point that says you have to give it all if you sell your 10 acres. Nothing there. It's important to note that they're both involved in the decision that they're going to make to hold something back. The problem has come in that as they bring the offering of the sale to the apostles, the appearance is if they're all in. They're faking. They're living a lie. They're giving the offering as if this is the entirety of the sale. So they're not letting it be known that they've held some back. Friend, that's greed. It's selfishness. It's hypocrisy. They're portraying something that they are not. The sin in this moment, we can make a long list, another one is lying. They're publicly, they've publicly portrayed themselves of giving it all. We are all in for Jesus. Except that they're not. Because they held something back. It's a heart issue. Not only are they lying and living a, in hypocrisy here, they're looking for reputation. They're looking for recognition. They're desiring some kind of status. John MacArthur said this. He said, these two, they desired the approval of men for their sacrificial act and to be thought of as members of the most spiritually noble. I support that church. I want others to see me putting my envelope in the plate, in the box. I want to stuff that envelope really thick so it looks like I'm giving a whole lot of money. 
I want to be seen doing it. I, I want people to know how right I am with God. I want them to look at me, polished, doing everything right. I want to be known in the church. But Jesus taught back in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. You know who did that? The Pharisees. They did that. You want to go on living a Pharisaical life and live in a lie? That's your, that's your call. God knows your heart. He knows who you are and he knows what you're doing and he knows everything about you. The Pharisees did that. They're the ones that put Jesus on the cross, by the way. Jesus said, don't practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them or be careful not to. Otherwise, you have your re no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. We want, I'm all in with Jesus. We want everybody to see that we're all in with Jesus. Why? Because we want the accolades. We want the praise for ourselves. There's another sin. Worship belongs to the Lord only. Jesus goes on to say, truly I tell you, they have their reward. The applaud of people is all you get if that's how you live. There's quite a rapid response in chapter five, verse three to this moment. Peter quickly asked him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it your, it's at your disposal, meaning Ananias, you didn't have to give it all, which is where we get that he's portraying as if he is giving it all from Peter's questioning. Why is it that you've planned this in your heart? You've not lied to people, Ananias, you lied to God. You compare Barnabas of chapter four to Ananias and Sapphire, there's quite the difference. We see in Barnabas' life, and if you were to read through, you'd catch the rest of his life, but you see one in Barnabas who's been transformed and inspired by grace that is greater than his sin, and then you have the other who are inspired by the enemy and the adversary into sinful selfishness, into lying and betrayal and trying to deceive God. What? The issue, again, they, they want credit. They want reputation. They want prestige for the great generosity, but they want all of the accolades without all the cost. Notice Peter Peter doesn't show anything here that he's taking this personally. If anything, Peter's probably broken for what Ananias and Sapphire have done or what they're involved in. And he just simply states to Ananias, Ananias, you have sinned against the Holy Spirit. You have sinned against God. We need to understand the weight of our sin. We need to understand that when we sin, we sin against a holy God. We sin against a God who is righteous in every way, who is, who is good in every way, who is pure without any sin, without any fault, who is always true, always faithful. We sin against a holy God. When we sin, that's why we've got to take our sin seriously. You'll also notice the birthplace of our sin. It's in the heart. Don't you dare say, the devil made me do it. If I ever hear those words come out of your mouth, I'll tell you what. We're going to have words. Don't you dare say the devil made me do it. He doesn't have that kind of power. 
He will tempt you. He will entice you. But he didn't make Eve and Adam eat that fruit. And he doesn't make you do what you do or me do what I do. James wrote that the birthplace of sin is in the heart. James wrote, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own, did you hear what he wrote? His own evil desire. That's right. It happens right here in the heart. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Friend, that's the ugliest baby ever born. And throw it out with the bathwater. Fill your bathtub up again. Notice the progression. Evil desires birth in the heart. It conceives, it gives birth to sin. And then what happens? Death. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? Death. The wages of sin is death. That's what we all get. That's what we all face. We don't know the timing, but we know it's coming. It's in the word. Our days are numbered. God has those days in mind. He knows exactly when it's coming, but it is coming. That is the sentence. That is the curse of our sin is death. Notice, please, that Peter did not offer any judgment here. And if your toes are getting stepped on this morning, I am not stepping on them. I am on the platform, okay? It's not me. That's the spirit of God at work in you, bringing conviction upon your life, bringing conviction upon your sin. And I suggest you respond to it and repent. Confess it. Let times of refreshing and renewal come from the presence of Christ in you and the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. But notice there's a great fear that comes upon the church. This is not necessarily the awe and reverence kind of fear. This means that people are afraid of what they are witnessing as Ananias falls to his death. There's almost a holy apprehension of what God, uh, God is doing in this moment. If that could happen to Ananias, it could happen to anyone. There's an uneasiness about them in this moment. And it confronts each one of us with the reality of a holy God who hates sin and judges sinners when he wants to judge sinners. I don't control when God judges sinners. You don't control when God judges sinners. But we should be aware of the fact that he does discipline those he loves. That's in the book of Hebrews. So one problem that we have in the church today is that we have a tendency to play down sin, minimize it. Oh, I can quit when I want to. Baloney. Not unless you repent and turn back to Christ. We, we might even try to blow it off like it's no big deal. But friend, sin is a big deal. We need to understand that. It's a big deal and the same thing that happened to Ananias happens to his wife. She had an opportunity, but she said, no, yes, we did sell it for that price. Boom, just like her husband. When we test the spirit of God, it means that we know that God has issued some kind of command, okay? And that we willingly or deliberately disobey to see if God was really serious about it. 
The couple challenged the spirit of God who knows everything about them. I mean, that's some nerves. They got guts. I say they got guts. But we today need to take this and just grasp the weight of sin because the weight of our sin is heavy. It's heavy. Don't walk out thinking, oh, that's not going to happen to me. You don't know that, nor do I. But eventually, death is going to come for us. And we need to be ready for that. And we need to understand that sin is first and foremost sin against God, and the wages of our sin is death. God takes it absolutely serious, and so should we. The world is what's telling us, oh, don't be such a stick in the mud, right? Just blow it off. It's not that important. You can minimize it. Man, there's even people in the church that they're not going to preach against sin anymore. It's too much bad news. We don't want to hear that. People want to be uplifted. Live your best life now. Be the best dad you can be. Be the best mom you can be. Here's how to have a, a, the perfect God-centered marriage. Like, we can do all of these things and totally ignore sin. We can't ignore it. God hates sin and he takes it seriously. He is holy. In church, he calls us to be holy. Now, the aim here is not that we walk out feeling pious and holy. It's that we simply turn to the Christ who died for us in repentance and humility. And if this story makes us do anything or calls our attention to any one issue, it just, to me, it called me this week to just think, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, give me a heart like Barnabas. Help me to be generous. Keep me away from the edge like Ananias and Sapphira as they jumped off. We also need to avoid the fallacy of cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I believe, is at least the first one I've ever seen use that phrase, cheap grace, in this book, The Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace is simply viewing Jesus as salvation only, wanting nothing to do with him as Lord. We could call it have it your way grace. And we step into that cheap grace kind of mindset when we take it upon ourselves to make a decision against the will of God or the attitude of saying, oh, well, he'll forgive me because he has to. And then we just jump off and willingly commit and step into sin. You presume on the grace of God, please don't make that same mistake as Ananias and Sapphira. We are called to holiness. We are called to authenticity. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be holy, to walk with Christ. We're not off the hook. We get to live. We, we can't live however we want. He has saved us to something. He hasn't just saved us from something. He saved us to holiness, to walk with him. And he calls us still to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. And the Spirit is at work tuning us to be more like Jesus. Finally, be ready for the spiritual battle because the enemy is still active. Luke, excuse me, Peter did point out when he asked Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You see, the enemy, he attacks from without. He also attacks from within. He's still at work, our old enemy and adversary. 
He doesn't want us to be a healthy, united, passionate, for the gospel growing church. He wants us to be weak and feeble, frail, scared and timid in our gospel witness. You gotta be ready for the spiritual battle just like Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter six. We've gotta put on our spiritual armor every single day to be ready for battle. The great unseen spiritual battle that is waged in our hearts every single minute of every single day. I don't want to offer any commentary on what's happened in Afghanistan lately, but just by way of illustration, for 20 years, our armed services, men and women, gave their time away from our homeland, away from their families, to defend freedom at a great cost. And while they were there, they were protecting us from another terrorist attack. But as we saw, when the guard protection, if you will, was removed, the enemy came right back where they started. Friend, if you are not daily ready for the spiritual battle that is at war within your soul, by putting on that spiritual armor of Ephesians 6, you might just step in it like Ananias and Sapphira did. Be ready for battle, because we are called to walk in the light as he is in the light. We have an event in the life of the church that resembles another time in Israel's history. A man by the name of Achan. It was right after a great battle, the victory of Jericho. It was a miracle. God working in Israel. They marched around the city for about a week. And then on the last day, they hooped and hollered. And the walls came tumbling down. Not really great military strategy. But when God's on your side, it doesn't have to be great strategy because you got God on your side. Okay? But after that great victory, this man named Achan took some things that belonged to God. They were supposed to be set aside for God and and, and to to honor him, and he took them and hid them. Same thing that happened to Ananias and Sapphira happened to Achan. And F.F. Bruce, a great theologian and commentator, said this. He said, in both of these stories, there's one act of deceit, just the same act of deceit that interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. 100 pianos, all tuned to the same tuning fork, would be a beautiful concert until just one string from one of the 100 pianos gets out of tune. Don't be that one. 